Welcome to the First Baptist Barberville Weekly Sermon Podcast. At FBC Barberville, our mission is to gather, grow, give, and go. Join us for live worship on the Court Square in Barberville, Kentucky, or to learn more about our church, visit fbcbarberville.com. Here is Pastor Tyler Shields. Again, it's great to see everybody this morning. Always appreciate you being here with us at First Baptist Church. So we've, in our reading and in our sermons, we've gone through a lot of history as of late, reading through Kings and Chronicles and some of those portions of the Bible. But we're also starting to spend some time in the books of the prophets, we call them. Now, when we hear the word prophet or the word prophecy, we we often think about future things or somebody foretelling of future things that are yet to happen. And there, there is some of that in the books of the prophets. But more often than not, really the prophets, I think a good way to think of the prophets are as a missionary. Uh, Maybe even a missionary to their own people. I kind of imagine the prophets as a a guard on the spiritual watchtower for their people or for whatever group of people God has sent them to. And what I mean by that is the prophets typically would, would survey the current situation from a spiritual standpoint. Uh, what was going on with the people, with the nation. And then they would proclaim uh, what would happen if the people did or did not do certain things. For example, most times when we read through the words of the prophets, they're observing the sinfulness of a nation. Usually it was the nation of Israel or Judah. And then they're proclaiming God's judgment on that nation should the nation refuse to repent and turn back to God. And so in the Old Testament, we have a lot of prophets. We have the major prophets, we call them. Uh, There's four of those, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then we have the other 12 who we call the minor prophets. And they're not major and minor because some are more important than the other. It's just the major prophets, uh, their writings are usually longer and they're more broadly focused in in their message. Now, the minor prophets are typically those shorter books, and they're much more narrowly focused in their message. There was a, a young preacher that got up to preach. He was fresh out of the cemetery. (laughs) Fresh out of, I don't know, depends on how you look at it. Fresh out of the seminary, and he was very eager to, to, to show his vast wealth of information and knowledge that he had gained from the seminary, right? And so he went to this country church. He was asked to fill in while they were in between preachers. And he begins to just show off his, his knowledge, right? And he goes to, uh, to do just an overview of all of the Old Testament prophets, which is quite a feat. So he begins with those four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, kind of gives an overview of those. And he's doing a really good job, very eloquently in his speech. She sounds just like a Bible commentary, which is kind of dry as cornbread. But he's doing a good job. About 45 minutes into this thing, he gets done with the major prophets. He says, now we must turn to the minor prophets. To what place shall we assign the minor prophets? And this one old boy is sitting there and he'd had about as much of this as he could stomach. To what place shall we assign the minor prophets? He says, preacher, if there ain't enough room in here, they can have my place. I'm done. (laughs) Well, this morning, I want to look at one of those minor prophets by the name of Jonah. 
This little four-chapter book of Jonah, it's nestled right between Obadiah and Micah there in the latter portion of the Old Testament. And I was reflecting this week, and I realized I've preached from the book of Jonah right here in this church before, actually. Matter of fact, to the best of my recollection, my very first sermon, if you will, on a Sunday night was right here in this pulpit under the tutelage of Dr. John Craven. And I preached, I think, from the first chapter of the book of Jonah. And the whole sermon lasted a good probably 10 or 15 minutes. It was just absolutely terrible. But this church was so gracious in giving the young wannabe preacher a chance to divide God's Word. And I'll forever be grateful for that opportunity. So today, all these years later, let's turn back to the book of Jonah. Not chapter 1, but chapter 4 this morning. Most people consider the miracle of the book of Jonah to be the, the whale, right? Or the great fish that we read about in the early part of the book. I think there are several things in Jonah just as miraculous as the fish, such as the storm that God sent to get Jonah into the fish. Then we read later about the plant, about the worm, about the wind, all of these things that God ordained. But I submit to you this morning, the most miraculous thing about the book of Jonah is none of those things, not even the fish. The most miraculous thing about the book of Jonah is that an entire pagan city, some 120,000 souls, repented of their sin and turned to God in faith. That's the miracle of the book of Jonah. So let's read chapter 4 together. It's fairly short. And it's an odd one. Most people are familiar with the first couple chapters. Chapter 4 is a little bit different. The Bible says that Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in his shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. So I may, may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left as well as many animals. And folks, that is how the book of Jonah comes to an end. So what do we do with this small four-chapter book of Jonah? Specifically, what do we do with this strange final chapter? It's kind of strange, isn't it, the way the book of Jonah wraps up? 
It ends with a question from God himself. And we really don't have any closure. We don't have a happily ever after for Jonah, for the Ninevites, or or really anything else about Jonah until he's referenced in the New Testament. But that's all about being in the belly of the great fish. But I think there's at least four points of application, four things that we must do based on Jonah chapter 4. Four must this morning. And the first one's very simple, folks. I must want people to be saved. Some people have tried to dance around this whole issue here in the book of Jonah, the reason behind why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. But it really boils down to the fact that Jonah just didn't want to go because he knew God's character so well. He knew that that, that God, as he says, was gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in faithful love who relents from sending disaster. He knew that God was that way. He knew his scripture, and he knew God's character. And so he knew that if, in fact, he went, went and he preached God's judgment. And if these people did in fact repent from their sin, then God would indeed turn from his wrath and spare them in that, from that destruction. And ultimately, he did not want the Ninevites to be spared, or as we might say, to be saved. So who are these people that live in Nineveh? Nineveh is a pretty interesting town. It's actually, it was located along the, the Tigris River that we read about in other parts of Scripture. The river is still there today. I've, I've actually seen it. I've been there. And, the, and Nineveh is located in, very close to what we would call modern-day Mosul, Iraq. It's a very interesting city, very, uh, very ancient city. Some even uh, tie this city back to the Nimrod that we read about early in Scripture. And this ancient city was a very popular trade center, and it was filled with absolutely ruthless people, immoral people, violent people, that the Israelites did not like. Now later in history, they become even more ruthless and more violent under the Assyrian Empire than they were in Jonah's day, but still they just were not good people. It's long been a threat to ancient Israel. And Jonah certainly did not like them, so much so that he didn't want them to be spared from God's judgment. Now, this is where God sent him, though, right? Of all places, you're going to go here. And I think it was to prove a few very important points. First of all, the first thing is God wants to save people, doesn't he? Jesus' mission His mission statement when he came to earth was to seek and to save that which was lost. Likewise, because our God wants people to be saved, we should want people to be saved. Now, I know you're sitting there thinking, well, of course, preacher, we should want people to be saved. One reason we're here was because we we want people to be saved. I mean, I pray for people to be saved, preacher. I clap my hands because people get saved. And I clap my hands because 19 kids made a decision at Bible school. But do we want it enough... To act on it. Not just in prayer. Not just in celebration. But to actually do something about it. To actually go and share the gospel with lost people. To actually sit down and talk to people about their salvation. And about their relationship with God. There's another point God was proving. And that's that there are some people, folks, that are just hard to love. Can I get an amen? It's just true, isn't it? And again, it's easy to say, yes, preacher, we want everybody to be saved. But do you really want your enemies to be saved? Do you ever pray for your enemies and you pray that their brakes go out or you pray that something falls on their head or they drop something on their toe? That's not the kind of prayers we need to pray for our enemies. I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. But most of us don't have true enemies. Let me give you an example. This is something personally I struggled with for a bit. 
because I knew what it was like to have an enemy that wanted to take my life from me. And so I, I had to ask myself some questions like, do I really want radical extremist Muslims to be saved, to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and be spared from God's judgment? Will I pray for them? Am I actually willing to go back to the places where they tried to take my life and share the gospel with them should God ask me to do that? And for a while, I'll be frank, I was a little bit not so sure. But I had to work through that. And I came to the conclusion, this conclusion. It doesn't matter who they are, folks. They are no better than me or you. And what I mean by that is that I am no more worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ than some of the worst people that have ever walked planet Earth. And for me as a Christian, as a follower of Christ... I must want everyone to be saved some way. I must want, and when I say everyone, I'm going to be real with you. I must want and pray that everyone from the Pope to the pedophile comes to the saving, redeeming, transforming knowledge of Jesus Christ. So do you have a burden for the lost? I mean, when I say burden, do you truly want people to be saved to the point that it actually bothers you that they're not saved? And you're willing to do something about it. And if it does not bother us, church, and, and, and here's what I, uh, we talk about this sometimes amongst preachers. When we open it up for prayer requests, what are most of our prayer requests about? It's about us. It's about Aunt Sally Sniffles, my dog that ran away. You know, all the stuff you put in a good country song is what we pray about. But how often do we cry out the names of lost people to God as a congregation that they might be saved? It worries me that we're not more concerned. I'm not talking about our church. I'm talking about Christians in general. Charles Spurgeon put it more bluntly. He said, Have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you may not be saved yourself. Because when you've got the, the cure for everything that sin has done to us, you should want to share that with somebody that they too could be saved. Jonah didn't want him to be saved. It's pretty clear. But the second thing is he overvalued his creature comforts. That's our second point. I must undervalue my plant. Now, that's a weird point, but let me explain. For whatever reason, Jonah leaves the city of Nineveh and, and just far enough that he can look and, and see what exactly is going to happen to them. And while he's watching, he settles into this comf comfortable little place, builds a little hut, and, and God even gives Jonah this little plant that grows up kind of miraculously and provides some shade for him. And for once in this entire story, Jonah's happy for just a minute. And the language indicates that he was overwhelmingly happy and satisfied about his situation. But Jonah wasn't happy with the right things. He was happy with these temporal comforts. Jonah should have been happy about the repentance of the Ninevites, but he was so wrapped up in this temporary pleasure, much like, much like we are sometimes. We forget what's truly most important in life, in eternity. The plant, like the relenting from disaster, was provided by God in His sovereignty, by God in His grace. And Jonah ended up appreciating this trivial thing, this temporary thing, more than he appreciated God's amazing grace to the Ninevites. And I think this whole scene in chapter 4 is such a clear picture of the human race because we so easily 
so easily get distracted from kingdom things. We so easily get wrapped up in these things that aren't going to last. These things that, that don't have eternal value or a lasting impact. We fight and we bicker, uh, even Christians, about things, folks, that just don't matter in the grand scheme of things. And then what happens is we cling to these things. These temporal things so hard. And we begin to neglect that sacred duty that Christ has given us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and to make disciples of the nations. There's a story I like to share from time to time about a period in history. It was the early 1900s. There was a, a, a group of people, missionaries, that kind of sprang up and, and they decided in those early years of that century that they would leave behind their homes, they'd leave behind their belongings, their families, leave it all behind in order to take the gospel to some places that were so dark and so unreached that they just weren't sure that they'd ever make it home alive. Matter of fact, they, they anticipated that they would never come home and they expected it so much that they packed all their belongings that they would need, not into suitcases and fancy luggage, but they packed all their belongings for those trips into their own homemade coffin that they would ship ahead of them and they became known as the one-way missionaries. They didn't need a round-trip ticket because they were going to use their dying breath to tell a dark world about Jesus. How easily we forget what's most important. We overvalue our little plants, if you will. These temporal things, our little kingdoms that we spend so much time and energy building, our creature comforts and much, you know, I think about Christ's disciples, it's much like them for a while when they were so timid and so scared and so afraid that they too might lose their stuff or lose their families or lose their lives. But then I noticed in the story of the disciples, something happened, didn't it? They watched as Christ not only went to the cross and died, but they saw that the cross and death and even the grave itself could not defeat him. And suddenly all of that fear, all of that timidity just went away. To the point that when St. Peter, who was, I think, so afraid of, of, of dying at one point, when his time finally came and they did decide to crucify Peter and they put him on the cross, he said, no, 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 no. Don't hang me there like my Lord. You crucify me upside down because I'm not worthy to die in the same manner. Jonah overvalued the temporal. And I think that's one of the points God's trying to prove through this little story at the end of this book. We must undervalue the things of this world. Even this temporal life that we live. Because folks, one day when all of that's stripped away, and one day it will be, if we don't have something that's more concrete, something that's more permanent, something that's more soul satisfying, then we're going to be left with nothing. And that takes us to the third point. I must be content with Christ. The Bible says that part of as part of this lesson that God appoints this plant to grow. And then he appoints a worm to kill the plant that he appointed to grow. It's interesting. And then he appoints the sun to beat down on Jonah's old head. And then he appoints this scorching east wind to blow to just dry him up and make him hot. And God took all of Jonah's temporal comforts, again, to prove a point. 
Because God knew what Jonah would do. He knew how he'd react. And what did Jonah do? He went back to his old ways of thinking. He wanted, very clearly, he wanted to die. He became suicidal. He gave up on life once again. Let me ask you something, church. Do you really... I mean, do you sincerely, in your heart of hearts, believe the gospel message that we share? The, the story that we tell over and over and over. I mean, do you really have all of your, your hope and trust and faith in that? Because the true gospel tells us that Christ is everything. It, it tells us it's all about him, that He is all-sufficient, that He is all-satisfying. Now, now we recently, as Southern Baptist, kicked Rick Warren's church out of the SBC. Look that up on your own. But I'll tell you something. Rick got one thing right. He wrote a book several years ago called The Purpose Driven Life, and it changed, helped change my life when I was a young man because I opened this book up hoping to, hoping to find out the purpose of life. And I turned to the very first page and three little words in the very first sentence of that book. You know what it said? It's not about you. How true. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Him and His work that He did for you. And it's all about the work now that you can do as a Christian for Him. And when all of the other stuff is stripped away at the end of this life, you better be content with Christ Himself. It's a lesson that Paul tried to teach the Philippian church. He says, folks, I've learned this secret. Maybe I didn't know it, but I do now. And I've learned that the secret of contentment in life, whether you got a lot or whether you don't have anything at all, the secret of being content and satisfied with life is Christ himself because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And here's the hard truth is one day it will all be stripped away and you're going to stand before God with nothing that you've accumulated in this life. And if you have not placed all of your hope and trust in Christ but in something else, then you're going to be left empty-handed. So I like to think about eternity. Anybody else sit around and ever think about heaven? Nobody does, okay? Well, I encourage you to do that sometimes. It's, it's healthy, and it kind of helps you put things into perspective sometimes. And at funerals, one of the things that I often like to talk about is heaven. I, whether the person was saved or lost, we can still talk about heaven and what it's supposed to be like. And the Bible offers a lot of beautiful glimpses into this wonderful place, that there's going to be uh, no sickness in heaven, no pain in heaven, no sorrow or sadness in heaven, no sin and all those effects of sinful living in heaven. And the Bible says that it's got, uh, uh, oh my goodness, streets made of gold, walls made of jasper, gates made of pearl. And then you take all of that beauty and then you think all of these loved ones that we've had who've gone on before us, they're there. And when I get to walk into the streets of heaven, I think there's going to be this grand family reunion as we all get to see each other in eternity once again. Such a wonderful place. And then I always make the point that the most wonderful thing about heaven, though, it's none of that. The most wonderful thing about heaven is that that's where Jesus is at. Jesus is there. And, and I, I fear this about many modern-day Christians, that many Christians, uh, they, they, they love Jesus for the wrong reason. They love Jesus because they feel like Jesus is their best chance at fire insurance. That He is their ticket to heaven. 
And so I, I ask myself sometimes this question. I'll ask you this morning. I think it's healthy to ask ourselves this. Would you take heaven? <laughs> would you take all of that stuff, the beauty, the, the joy, the presence of our love, would you have all of that walking on streets of gold for the rest of eternity? Would you take that if Jesus wasn't there? Or would you take Jesus and forfeit all of that? Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all of this world, but give me Jesus. The final point from this chapter is not just about salvation and, and eternal things. It's about present things. And even in this present life, God is trying to show us through Jonah that I must truly, not just half-heartedly, but truly care about people. Because our God truly cares about people. It's the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is this, that Jonah again knows God's character as revealed there in verse 2. He knows it very well. And Jonah is upset. Notice what, what, what really bothers Jonah theologically. He is upset that such a self-preserving repentance is enough for God to spare these terrible people. In other words, Jonah is upset that these people who want to escape judgment so bad, perhaps they repent only in a very shallow way so that they can be spared from God's judgment, that they turn from their wickedness, not because they love God, but they don't want to die. They don't want to experience this God's judgment. He's upset that God allows this to happen. And he's so upset that he actually uses what some call a Hebrew expletive there in verse 9. He's just really mad at God and the entire situation. But notice his anger is entirely selfish. I think this is the point that God is trying to make through the illustration. That Jonah was shielded by this plant that he didn't deserve. Even if it was for a day or so. It was merely an act of God's mercy and God's grace. The Ninevites were spared not because they deserved it. But because of God's grace and God's mercy. Simply put, God was showing that he cares about people. And not just some people. God cares about all people. And he's essentially telling Jonah, Jonah, if you can have so much self-compassion. If you can have so much self-empathy. Compassion on yourself because you lost your creature comforts. Then... And your, your little feelings are hurt about these undeserving people being saved when you yourself are such a flawed person. If that's the way you feel, Jonah, then how much more compassion will God have on people who do not even know right from wrong but still choose to trust in Him and turn from their wicked ways through simple faith? This whole narrative, it, it's, it's, a, it's fascinating on one hand it's, it's encouraging on one hand that so many people did repent and were saved. But on the other hand, it's a sad story, this book of Jonah, isn't it? Because this man did not care about people enough to take God's word to them. I think that if God had really given Jonah an option in the matter and, and not made him get swallowed by a fish and all this other stuff, I don't know that he even, had even gone to the Ninevites and proclaimed God's word to them. And then when he does go, and when God spares them as he said he would do, this man doesn't even care enough about those people to celebrate their salvation. It kind of seems a bit outrageous, really, doesn't it? When, when I think about 
who Jonah really was, I, I get a little mad at the guy. I mean, really, right? But then I think, well, what if we put it into our context? What do we do? So we have a team right now coming back from Brazil. Lord willing, they'll be here 1.30, 2 o'clock this afternoon. And, and this group of ladies took their vacation time, as several have done throughout the year. They've taken their vacation time. They've taken their hard-earned money to load up and, and to go and, and share the gospel with people on the other end of the earth. People that most of us will never again meet in our lives. Not this side of eternity. And I think it's, it's another healthy question to ask. If, if Jesus asked you to do that, I'm talking just a short-term mission trip. If He asked you to do that, sacrifice that time with your family. Sacrifice those vacation days. Take that money you were going to put down on whatever and put it towards a mission. Would you do that? If Jesus, even more than that, asked you to go and, and, and minister to someone that you just can't stand. Now, I know there's... Look, I know there's some people Christians can't stand. I get it. We're all human. But if, if God said, I want you to go and minister to them. And I'm talking people you have zero compassion for. People you just don't like. Would you go? What if God asked you to do more than that and He wanted you to leave everything behind in the life that you know now? All of your stuff, your 401k, your retirement plan, your job family members, friends, your church, would you load up and go to some place to the far end of the earth to share the good news about Jesus? The answer, the honest answer for many is probably not, Pastor. Probably not. And I say that because here's the, the real truth. If, if He didn't ask you to go across the sea, but He he asked you to go across the street. Would you do that? Because the truth is, He's asked us really to do all those things. Already. Jesus has given us a blanket command for what I'm talking about in this thing we call the Great Commission. Where He wants us to go to every last person on planet earth from our neighbors to the nations and disciple each and every one of them. It's our job. And if we don't do that, if we're not the Jonah, the good, the good Jonah that actually did what he's supposed to, who's going to? It's not going to happen. That is our function as the church. And folks, if we don't do it, it is the consequences. Again, hear me. It's literally life and death, heaven and hell. Let's stand as we close in prayer. And I'm going to ask you these questions. Thinking about this whole narrative, do you really want people to be saved? Do you want people to be spared from God's wrath? Do you care enough about people to go and share the gospel with them? Not just people on the far end of the planet, but I'm talking about your friends, your family, the people down the street. Would you share the gospel with them? And maybe this morning, you're on the whole other end of this thing, and you're the person that, that's needing to, to accept the gospel and be saved this morning. Let me ask you, if that's you this morning, would you be that Ninevite that finds peace with God today? Let's pray. Father, 
we know that you've entrusted to us this most precious gift called the gospel. And God, I pray that we don't take it for granted. I pray that we steward the gospel the way that you've asked us to, Lord. That we take it to the uttermost parts of the earth. That we would reach and disciple our friends, our families. And Lord, if the opportunity comes, that we would take it wherever you'd have us go. And Lord, maybe it's not as difficult as we think. Maybe it's not just about loading up and going on a flight somewhere. God, maybe it's about talking to our children. Maybe it's about talking to our spouse. Maybe it's about having that conversation with our dear friend that just needs Jesus. Lord, forgive us for growing complacent from time to time, for taking the gospel for granted. And God, give us that boldness that the disciples had who were unashamed and unafraid to tell others about Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Thanks for listening to the weekly sermon podcast. Please subscribe, but also join us live in person on the Court Square in Barberville or find us on YouTube by searching FBC Barberville, on Instagram at first underscore Baptist underscore Barberville, on Twitter at Barberville FBC or on our Facebook page, First Baptist Barberville.